Welcome to the Burning Zone. You know, the longer I have lived in this world, the more I have realized that this is a planet full of broken-hearted people. I doubt that there is a single person we will ever meet who isn't broken-hearted about something. So how are we to deal with this, both in ourselves and others? Maybe we need to learn how to mourn. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of Hollywood. According to the Bible, the kingdom of heaven stands in opposition to all the kingdoms of this world. Yet I think it's important to understand that that doesn't stand against and in opposition to the concept of human culture, to human creativity. No, it doesn't stand in opposition to that at all. In part, God created people. He created you and me so that we could create culture with all the various gifts that God gives to us. And for those of us who are here in Hollywood, that includes television and film, yeah. You know, the problem we face in Hollywood right now is the problem we faced in Hollywood from the very beginning. It's the problem we face all around the world, isn't it? The problem is that sinful, rebellious, greedy, immoral, angry, and horrible people create exactly that kind of material, don't they? Uh, That's the reason why Christians who protest demanding that Hollywood give them exactly what they want are doomed to failure because the people here are giving them what they know and what they believe. Sinful, rebellious, greedy, immoral, and angry people create sinful, rebellious, greedy, immoral, and angry film and television. It comes from the heart. You know, yet even in its fallen state, as we can see it right now, Hollywood does produce the shadows of something far greater, doesn't it? When we see those shadows in human culture, it gives us a hint of what might have been and what will be when the kingdom of heaven overwhelms all the kingdoms of this earth. According to the book of Daniel and so many other books of the Bible, that day is coming soon. There is every reason to believe it's coming very soon. And thank God for that. In the meantime, those of us who are true followers of Jesus and who are citizens of his kingdom are to bring the life and truth of that kingdom into places like Hollywood. It's people gifted with creativity. It means bringing those values into every human relationship and every piece of creative work that you do. We accomplish this by co-laboring with the Holy Spirit who will guide and empower us to accomplish that which he desires. And I will tell you something, as someone who has created television and who has worked in television, I have experienced that co-laboring on a very personal uh, level here in this industry in the past. Now, don't misunderstand me. What I've just said doesn't mean that God's going to guide us to talk directly about Jesus and everything we create. What does it mean? It means that everything we create, we should be able to lay without shame or excuse or regret on the altar before our king. It means that the things we create must be built on the great truths of God. It means that we must stand against every destructive lie that is tearing humanity apart, even if taking that stand costs us everything. It means that we will not become co-laborers with the great lords of darkness as they pervert truth and destroy people in all the kingdoms of this world, and especially for us here in the kingdom of Hollywood. The purpose of this study is to help us equip to live the lives of wise and loyal citizens of Jesus' kingdom. 
bearing fruit for him in this world until he comes. The darkness is growing, my friends. Many people who are not Christians at all or even religious at all are beginning to feel it. As Jesus predicted, a terrible day is coming, a spiritual night when no one can work who tries to do the works of righteousness. That night is coming on the whole world. Never in my life have I heard more dire predictions about the future than I'm hearing right now. Perhaps you're in the same situation. And I'm not talking about the Mayans or the Hopis or Nostradamus or any of the New Age prophets. This is coming from apparently rational and knowledgeable individuals who are seeing clear portents in many areas of human life. There is a growing fear that we are on the brink of chaos. Perhaps you saw the story that during the holiday, uh, gun sales in America were at an all-time high. Uh, Those with financial resources are scratching around trying to prepare for disaster. Those without such resources simply grow more desperate and angry. As citizens of the kingdom of heaven, the command of our king is clear. No matter what we see happening, no matter how much the world becomes controlled by terror, and that is truly happening, though we don't need very many terrorists to have that happen, we are not to be afraid. The only way to live without fear is to keep our eyes on our King Jesus. Stop letting your imagination come under the control of darkness, under the control of Satan. You know that Satan is at work when you are tempted to fear. Stay busy with the work that Jesus has given you to do. And if you don't consider the work that you're doing to be for him, it's time to get your lazy spiritual act together. Uh, If we can, we want to help you do that in this study. Several months ago, we began studying eight amazing statements of power that Jesus made. They are statements that encapsulate all the values of his kingdom in this world, and they are not suggestions. Jesus didn't say, it would be really nice if these described you. They describe the true citizens of God's kingdom who are in this world right now. Increasingly, as we grow in the Lord, they should begin to describe us. These statements are not just static descriptions. They are statements of power. At their heart is the key to the eventual overthrow of Satan's kingdom. All of them are found in Matthew chapter 5. Tonight we're going to begin to look at the second of those statements. But before we do, I want us to read some passages from the scripture. First, please turn with me if you have your Bibles to Isaiah 63 verse 7. We'll begin there. Isaiah 63, 7. The prophet Isaiah writes, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their savior in all their afflictions He was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them, and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. There are many wonderful thoughts in this passage, but the one I want you to remember is this. In all their afflictions, he was afflicted. The word in Hebrew that is translated affliction means every kind of trouble both the large ones and the small ones, from a pebble in the shoe to the most grievous loss. 
Whatever happened to God's people in the Old Testament, he felt all those things right along with them as though they were happening to him. Now please turn to Matthew 25, verses 31. We'll start there to 46. Matthew 25, verse 31. We've read this passage before, but it is such an important passage. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say to all those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. Those are the words of Jesus himself. And such strange words they are. Whatever is done to Jesus' followers, it is the same as if it had been done to him. One last passage, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. This is the famous story of the conversion of St. Paul, who was at this point in his life known as, as Saul. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found anyone who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Just exactly what had Paul or Saul been doing? We're told here in the book of Acts that until this point, he had been wreaking havoc on the early Christian church, which was at that time known as the way. Anyone who was a follower of Jesus, he would drag out, imprison, torture, and even kill. Here is the point for our consideration. Jesus did not say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my followers? Instead, he says, why are you doing these hideous things to me? In every act of torture, you are torturing me. With every murder, you've been murdering me. Do you understand the clear message of all these passages? As a child of God, his presence in your life is infinitely deeper than you could ever imagine. 
to the point that every single thing you feel, he feels, every single thing that happens to you happens to him. Every single thing that is done to you, both for good or for ill, is done to him. Now, we're imaginative people here. We're creative people. Just imagine that uh, you could feel with total reality and intensity everything being felt by just 10 people around you all day long. For 10, 10 people, that's all. You'd go insane in 24 hours. God is infinite in wisdom, power, joy, and love. He is infinite in all his attributes, which means that he is infinite in his ability to suffer. We are the children of a broken-hearted God. Why would God create humanity knowing how we would break his heart and how much suffering we would cause him? I have no answer for that. All we know is that God is infinite love coupled with inexorable will. Infinite creativity and infinite love for his creatures coupled with inexorable decision. That decision that was from a fallen race, he was going to create a new race of humans that would bring glory to his name and intimacy of eternal fellowship to him. So here's the reality. This day, in this world, we have the ability to bring either heart-wrenching sorrow or incredible joy to our eternal Father. Our eternal Father, the creator of all, tiny, scrawny little beings that we are, that is amazing. How do we bring heart-wrenching sorrow to God? What would bring, certainly would break the heart of a human father who had cared for his child over many, many years, guiding, loving, and providing at great personal cost? Wouldn't it break his heart if that child refused to love him back? If that child turned against him, attributing to him the most horrible and evil actions and motives? If that child insisted on destroying himself and others? How awful would that be for a human father? What did Jesus say was the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Well, the greatest sin then is not to love him, but to reject him. And out of that sin grows all the other sins that we might commit. You know, when I was a young teenager, um, I was not a good kid. Uh, That's a shock to many of you who thought that I've been perfect all these years. You know, I, I worked hard at being a proficient liar. I was skillful at it. I didn't lie for fun. I lied to protect myself. Uh, I needed to have a defensible position when certain accusations might be flung at me. If an accusation happened to be false, which was very rare, uh, then I would be filled with righteous indignation. Oh, everything is so unfair to me, and I'm so innocent of that one single accusation. However, if the accusation were true, I had to be prepared with a logical and sensible lie. I should have been an attorney. I was good at this. (laughs) Charles, don't say it so quickly and easily. When I was a freshman in high school, I hung out with a group of guys who shared my practical ethics. We all claimed to be Christians, of course. We came from Christian families. Several of us had fathers who were actual Christian leaders. My father was. And we knew our fathers loved us. We all went to church and to youth groups and all of the usual religious Christian stuff that kids do. And we were quite ready to give our testimonies about what God had done for us. And on the side, we stole from stores. Um, 
<laughs> it's true. It was a game, really. Uh, this was long before surveillance cameras. The only way to stop a shoplifter was for a store clerk to catch the thief in the act. And so our game, the game went like this. Several of us would distract the store clerks while one of us would snake the targeted item. And we weren't professionals about it. We thought we were quite skillful. We didn't do it to sell stuff. We didn't hock it. We did it just because it was exciting. It was fun to do it. One thing that didn't concern us for one minute was how our fathers would feel about what we were doing. And definitely we weren't concerned about God. We just didn't want to get caught because that would be embarrassing and we would be punished. But the danger of all of that was part of the excitement, wasn't it? Did we love our fathers? Oh, we would have said we did and we did. But the truth was we were interested only in ourselves and what we wanted. Our maturity level was about 11 years old when we were 16. We were selfish, stupid little jerks and quite cocky about our jerkhood. Thank God he doesn't leave us in that situation. One evening, uh, my best friend and I went out to, uh, how can I say it, pick up a few things. Um, <laughs> no, it's true. We went to a Sears store. This was back when Sears actually was a store. Uh, you know, we wandered in and drifted around the, the aisles and we looked around. We, we sort of targeted this or that. And we, we got busy with our approach, our act, our game. Um, I distracted a clerk while my friend filched an item from the lower shelf. Now, we were good at this. It was just such a clean op. We were out of that store. Well, we were walking about a block away, and my friend was holding the item, when suddenly the store manager came running up, and before we could say a word, he grabbed my friend and dragged him away. Of course, being a brave and loyal accomplice, I ran like heck in the opposite direction. By the time I got home... My parents had already received the call. My friend had been taken to the police station where his parents picked him up. You know, uh, well, in, in this kind of circumstance, it's every man for himself, right? Needless to say, I had a lie already. I told my parents, I'm just, I just, I didn't see him take it. I'm shocked. I was shocked when we came out of the store and he had it. I was shocked when the store guy grabbed him. And of course I wasn't involved. I wouldn't do that. I would never do anything like that. How could he have done such a thing? He must have some kind of a spiritual problem. You know, it's like, you're just, you have to be ready. You know, you got to be ready. Well, that was the last time we ever shoplifted. We did a lot of other very bad stuff, but somehow the fun of shoplifting had kind of drained out of it. Though I didn't shoplift again, I did manage to maintain a high level of selfishness and spiritual schizophrenia. Upon a, and also I really continued to develop a wonderful ability to lie, especially to myself. I could be dishonest. I could sing worship songs with the best of them, even witnessing to people about Jesus, these poor lost souls. No, thank God he didn't give me or my friend any opportunity to get away with that for very long. Thank God he didn't give up on us either. My friend who was caught that night has been a Christian leader for many, many years. He is a true man of God. I know that today he feels as I do. As we look back at all the things we did, and I'm not sharing a bunch of stuff with you, uh, all the things we did, you know what we feel? I feel right now, I feel shame about what our sins did to our parents, but especially about what they did to our Father in heaven. 
Truly, I can pray with King David in Psalm 25, 6 and 7. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness, for they are from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. A mark of maturity is when we begin to understand and be deeply concerned about how our lives and our choices affect others. A mark of gross immaturity is to be so caught up on ourselves and what we want and even our own suffering and difficulties that we are unable to think of anyone else. Too many people seem to be frozen at 11 years old, an age of stupidity when what we want is all that matters. That, my friends, is one of the definitions of self-worship. It means nothing that we pay lip service to believing in God if we are really worshiping ourselves and our own abilities. If our desires, our needs, our wants are the most important thing in the world, if that's the case, no matter how spiritual we may appear, God doesn't mean much in our lives. It's only a small step to say that he doesn't exist at all. When I've established myself as my own little God. You know, self-worship is the heart of all feeble attempts at atheism. To be absolutely rational about it, true atheism is impossible. What we call atheism is just shifting worship from one being outside myself to a pitiful, angry little God of my own creation, the ever-omnipotent I. Of course, I would never admit that I am am omnipotent. I just act that way. The proof of my omnipotence is in the smug conceit that I am logical, rational, and wise enough to be master of my life and my fate, to be the captain of my own soul. What foolishness that is, because I don't even know if I'll take my next breath or not. Hollywood is full of such people like this, but so is the church. And it's far uglier there. Yes, the church is full of little 11-year-olds, who worship like crazy, yet in real life are operational atheists, with little concern about their sins and the heartbreak that they caused their father in heaven. When I was young, part of my gross immaturity was a refusal to think about how my actions affected my father. Then in the fullness of time, I became a father, and I've learned a lot. When your children are in agony, and it doesn't make any difference why they're in agony, you are in agony with them. Love becomes a kind of prison, and you are not free until they are free. Is this unspiritual? Does it mean that you, if you have this attitude, you don't have faith in God? Jesus didn't think so. That's why he told the story of the prodigal son and the father who waited and watched and never stopped loving, no matter how far away his son ran from him. That was how Jesus wanted us to understand our Father in heaven, our broken-hearted God. Do we care about what breaks God's heart? St. Paul tells us some of the things that break the heart of God in Ephesians 4, verse 25 to 32. Therefore, putting away lying. Boy, that was one for me. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer. But rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who is in need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it might impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Most of those words could be spoken by a human father to his children. We don't like to talk about sin and repentance in the church today. We want to talk only about love and acceptance and warm feelings. We're desperate to be happy, aren't we? Aren't Christians supposed to be happy? Isn't that the game? Isn't that the plan, the strategy? We want the church and our fellow Christians to help us be happy. But you know the truth of it is, most of us aren't happy. Many of us are just pretending, aren't we? Finally, after living this way for a long time, we look around. Everyone seems to be pretending along with us, and we get sick of the whole thing. We think that being a Christian just doesn't work. So inside, we give up. Oh, we may continue with the forms. We don't want to lose our friends. And we want Jesus to take us to heaven when we die, right? But that's about the sum total of our faith. What is one of the biggest problems that we face? We haven't understood that the happiness of heaven begins with sorrow. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, we find one of the most amazing statements that Jesus ever made. As he stood before a huge crowd on a mountainside, he said these words, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Do you remember what we said in the past about the word blessed that is used here? The Greek word that Jesus used is the word makarios. It means being filled with godlike joy that nothing in this world can take away. So literally, here's how that statement reads. Filled with godlike joy that nothing can take away are those who mourn. You know, on the face of it, that sounds absolutely crazy. And it gets even crazier when we look at the word Jesus used that is translated mourn. The Greek word is pentheo. And it means to wail and grieve the way you would wail and grieve if you lost the dearest person in your life. Filled with godlike joy are those so overwhelmed with sorrow that they wail and grieve as though for the dead. Are you kidding me? How can this be true? You know, there are people here tonight who have experienced the devastating loss of a loved one through death. They know what it means to feel that sorrow every single day. There are people here who have been abandoned and betrayed by those they love. They know what terrible grief that causes. How can we grieve like that and be filled with godlike joy? The very thought of it is actually frightening. Personally, I definitely prefer the Hollywood beatitude that is the exact opposite of this. As you know, throughout the course of these studies, I'm trying to create a Hollywood beatitude for each one. Blessed are those who struggle to think nothing but positive thoughts and run from negative experiences and negative people as though they had the plague, for they shall be constantly showered with the hugs and smiles of empty superficiality. That's Hollywood's beatitude. And I think that many, many Christians are working desperately to live up to it. Let me read that to you again, just so you can put it deeply in your mind. Blessed are those who struggle to think nothing but positive thoughts and run from negative experiences and negative people as though they had the plague, for they shall be constantly showered with the hugs and smiles of empty superficiality. We need to confront a disturbing truth. If you really are a citizen of Jesus' kingdom... 
you are going to mourn. Mourn with great sorrow. You're going to grieve for this world. You're going to grieve in this world. For that is our calling. People constantly talk about being called to this or that by God. I have never heard anyone say to me, I'm called to mourn. You know, but did you know that you're called to mourn and grieve if you're a citizen of the kingdom? Now, I don't like that. I wish I didn't have to say that. But what Jesus said was very clear. And when he walked on this earth, the Bible says that said that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And our Lord said that a servant is no better than his master. You know, I love the smiling, laughing Jesus. So often these are the portraits that sell best in the tchotchke section of Christian bookstores. Uh, Did Jesus smile and laugh? Does he smile and laugh today? Absolutely. I'm sure he did and he does. I think he has the greatest sense of humor in the universe. But I want to suggest to you that he was and is able to truly smile and laugh because he both knew and knows what to grieve about. And he insists on doing it. If we want to share in his joy, my friends, we must share in his sorrow. There's a lot to mourn and grieve about in this world, isn't there? Broken-hearted people are all around us. As citizens of God's kingdom, he calls us to mourn for lost and hurting people. Yes, to grieve for them. Jesus looked out over Jerusalem and cried over its stubborn blindness and its sin. He cried over a city of murderers who for centuries rejected God's prophets. Do you think that's the only time he ever cried? I don't think so at all. So very often, we are cold and impervious to the sin and sorrow all around us. And we think that's strength. That isn't strength at all. It's a weakness. Why are we this way? It is so because we haven't yet entered into the first vital act of what I will call kingdom mourning. Like selfish children, we haven't mourned and grieved about our own sin and what it does to Jesus Christ. You ever mourned over your sin? Let's be honest. It isn't natural to mourn about sin. The only way that kind of mourning can come into your life and into my life is by the supernatural visitation of God. The old Puritans understood this. They used to pray for what they called the gift of tears. Have you ever shed a single tear for your sin? If that hasn't happened, if it doesn't ever happen, something is wrong in your spiritual life. If you have never truly mourned and grieved over your sin, you need to examine whether you know and love God at all. You are sensitive to what causes pain to people when you love them. When you love someone, you don't want to hurt them. You're filled with sorrow when you do something, and more than anything, you want to make it right. Every one of us sins. That is the attitude of someone who loves when you commit sin. Mourning for our sin will lead to desperately desiring to make things right with God. We don't want to keep doing what we have been doing. That's called repentance. That kind of mourning proves we really love him. But the very awareness of sin and the desire to repent is a gift of love, literally from God's Holy Spirit itself. It isn't naturally in us. He has to open our eyes as we love him and obey him step by step. He draws us away from our sin. We grow to hate it. 
because we don't want to continue hurting the one we love. If you've been married and you're married to someone you love, you understand how this works. Do you remember what Jesus said was the second most important commandment? I am to love my neighbor as myself. Just as awareness of sin and the desire to repent does not come naturally to me, I will tell you something, compassion doesn't come naturally to me either. I really don't have a lot of it built straight into me. Like I said, I'm an old soldier. It's a strange thing, but you know something? The more God shows me what I'm really like, the more it leads to mourning and repentance for my sin, the more patience and compassion I have for the sin and the brokenness of my neighbor. Because no one, no one is a greater sinner both in actuality and in potential than I am. Apart from Jesus, I can tell you something. I am capable of the very worst. Slowly, as I mourn for my own sin, God opens my eyes to the plight of others. I begin to be able to mourn for them. As this takes place, I start to get the tiniest understanding of the broken heart of God for this world. I don't think there's any true Christian compassion that doesn't include the mourning of a broken heart. Compassion means that the door of my heart is open to the sin and suffering of others. And the key to that door is mourning for my own sin first. Filled with godlike joy are those who grieve. Truly, they begin to understand the heart of their father. But I don't think Jesus was talking only about mourning over sin. He was speaking also about those who grieve because of honest suffering and loss of every kind. And I will tell you that Hollywood is full of such suffering and loss. It's full of people who need deeds of compassion. And that's a natural result of kingdom mourning. In my final year as showrunner on The Equalizer, I hired a man for my staff who was an experienced writer-producer. I discovered that a very short time before his wife had left him for someone else. He was brokenhearted. He was struggling with all his might to deal with the divorce and remain a faithful father to their daughter. He didn't just need a job. He needed a safe place. He needed some protection and compassion. He needed someone to carry him for a little while till he got strong again. That is what Christians are here to do with the compassion of Jesus Christ in this world. Kingdom mourning for others brings kingdom action. Hollywood is full of people who don't mind showing a bit of short-term care and concern as long as it doesn't cost too much. Like the God we serve, we Christians should be in it for the long haul, carrying the burdens of others. That's part of what it means to be salt and light in this world. We carry it with people by weeping with those who weep and taking action where we are able. To grieve is our calling, and out of our grief comes loving action. I have discovered that often one of the hardest things for Christians to do is mourn for each other. You know, I have no trouble mourning for someone who is experiencing grievous loss for which they are not responsible, such as, I don't know, death or illness or something. But I tend to have very little patience or compassion For the sorrows of my brothers and sisters, if I think they have brought those sorrows and troubles onto themselves. Of course, I pray that God doesn't take that attitude toward me because most of my problems, about 90% of them, I brought on myself. And I don't want him to look at me that way, but I'll be happy to look at others that way. 
Now, sometimes mourning for someone and having compassion includes confronting that person in love and kicking them in the tail in order to wake them up. Yes, sometimes that's necessary. If you have to do it, just make sure you've done enough kingdom mourning for that person first. If you haven't done enough mourning so that God can give you his compassion for that individual, keep your mouth closed. Have we done enough kingdom mourning work for someone? The real test for me is what happens when a brother or sister doesn't listen to my wise counsel. Uh, You know, if I haven't done the mourning work for that individual, my automatic response when they don't listen to me is, okay, screw you. You don't want to hear the golden truth I'm sharing? Go crash and burn. I am done with you. Then I stand back and smugly watch the demolition derby take place. That attitude is sin. And I need to mourn over it and repent. Galatians 6, 2 and 3, we're told, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What are some of those burdens that I am to bear? They aren't pretty. They include stupidity, irritating personalities, stubbornness, unlikability, laziness, pride, arrogance, and just downright disagreeableness of others. Why can't people be as wonderful as I am? Thank God that I'm not a burden like that to anyone else. All of those ugly burdens are bad enough, but there's more. I am even to bear the burden of my brother or sister's sin by mourning for that person and praying for them. And if there must be a break in fellowship, I'm to continue praying and doing whatever I can for reconciliation, longing for the prodigal to come home while making sure that I am not the prodigal myself. If the break hasn't been caused by sin, just disagreement, I'm never to rest until the break is healed. Is that the way it works in the church? Is that the way it works among the Christians and the Christian ministries of Hollywood? I'm afraid not. Here's the way it works. I will hang out and have pretend spiritual fellowship with the people I like, the people who agree with me and people that I find attractive. With quiet disdain, I will ostracize those who irritate me, cause me needless grief, complain and whine, and generally are not fun to be with. I insist on being spiritually warm and cuddly and think that when I feel good, that is a mark of spiritual power. I refuse the fellowship of people who aren't just like me. Don't fool yourself. When this is your system of spiritual values, you are living not by the values of the kingdom of heaven, but by the kingdom of Hollywood. Because that is exactly how Hollywood works. No matter how much you may pray and worship and read your Bible, you are not under the control of the Holy Spirit. You are under the control of the Holy Spirit, who loves to present himself as an angel of light. There's a lot to mourn about, friends, and the most important mourning that we will ever do is for our own damnable sins. Jesus went to the cross for the attitudes that Christians have toward each other. Filled with godlike joy are those whose eyes are open and who grieve both for their own sin and for the tragedy they see around them. Remember, God feels every single hurt and sin in the lives of his people as though all of it were happening to him. When you play the elitist game and ostracize other Christians, you are ostracizing Jesus. I want you to consider this. We're creative folk here. Creativity in one form or another is our joy. It's our gift from God. Wouldn't you agree that the heart of creativity includes imagination and sensitivity? Can anything be created without those two elements? Absolutely not. Well, if this is so, and clearly it is, creative people like us 
should have special powers both to mourn for others and carry their burdens before God. Why do I say that? It's inherent in our gift. All we have to do is, under the power of the Holy Spirit, direct our gifts of imagination and sensitivity toward the life of another person who is in sin or in need. Let God use your gift to take you out of yourself instead of into yourself. Through your gifts of imagination and sensitivity, He can show you a little of what it's like to experience the brokenness of someone else's heart. And you will share in the mourning of God as you pray for them. What a weapon for God's kingdom that kind of creativity could be. And Satan knows this. That's why he wants so desperately for us to use our creative gifts for ourselves alone. He wants our creativity to focus ourselves inward. Everything has to be focused toward me. Even more, he wants to use our imaginations to create dark and ugly fantasies about others, to attribute false motives and attitudes to people we don't like. Creative people can be very, very destructive. With our twisted imaginations under his control, not only do we believe the lies, we spread them to others. In this way, a great weapon that God has given to his kingdom is turned against the body of Christ. We need to mourn and repent over the misuse of our creative gifts because we will answer to a broken-hearted God for what we have done or failed to do. Remember, whatever we have done or failed to do, we've done it to him. Carol and I and our family have been in the Christian community of Hollywood for a long time. When we came in 1977, there really was no Christian community, I suppose, except in the churches. There certainly were, but as far as a larger community, it hadn't really formed yet. We came to Hollywood like everyone else comes here with huge dreams and wonderful, youthful ignorance. Thank God for that ignorance. I'm glad I didn't know then what I know now. The years have passed. With their passing has come much more wisdom. As I look back on my years in Hollywood, I'm filled with joy and gratitude. But I do mourn for dreams and opportunities lost, burned away sometimes by my own wrong choices and sometimes by the wrong choices of others. Through my experience, I've learned to mourn in new ways. But such mourning leads me to give the past with all of its unfulfilled hopes and dreams into God's hands. And that kind of mourning brings a gift. Slowly, I have gained more and more compassion for others whose hopes and dreams are dying. God is present in your loss and your dying dreams, whoever you are. When I say that he is present, I mean that he is experiencing all of those dying dreams right along with you. Your sorrow is his sorrow. Hollywood is the world capital of dying dreams. Probably only the tiniest handful of people achieve here all that they have dreamed of. Yet we know from the statements of such blessed folk who reach that pinnacle without God that in spite of their success, they are filled with great emptiness. For the rest of us, how we deal with our dying dreams determines everything. With all of its feverish attempts at giddy pleasure, Hollywood is a place of loneliness and mourning. For most people, that mourning is filled with bitterness and self-pity. Christians have been here long enough now to show the world a different kind of mourning, Mourning that is based on gratitude to God for all his gifts and its sorrow is full of hope for the future in him. That is transformational kingdom mourning. The people of Hollywood don't understand anything about that kind of mourning because their mourning is under the control of the great lords of darkness. What they want is for dying dreams to bring anger and self-destruction. 
They want creative people to wither inside. They want your dreams to die slowly so that you can experience the fear and anger that burns into desperation. They want you to become toxic to everyone around you. I've seen it many times. People have come into my office at Universal Studios when I was there. People who reek of dying dreams. Desperation is in their eyes. They're like cancer sufferers. You try to be compassionate, but you want to get away from them as fast as possible. That is the attitude of the nice people of the kingdom of Hollywood. Understand it. It's there. Those who aren't nice in Hollywood, well, you won't even get in their door. Is it different in the Christian community of Hollywood? How do we deal with fellow Christians who have dying dreams? For many years, I have known so many brothers and sisters who have come here filled with high hopes, believing that God has called them to this place. Over and over, I have watched those dreams die. I've seen those people quietly fade away in their minds, having accomplished so much less than they had hoped. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Can you help bear the burdens of a brother or sister with dying dreams? Can you quietly mourn with them in prayer and fellowship? I hope you can, because if you aren't experiencing dying dreams now, you will. The alternative is to live by the standard of Hollywood. Many years ago, when I was represented by ICM, my agent told me the secret of the Hollywood agent game. It's very simple. He said this to me. He said, you know, Coleman, A client is like an elevator. You ride him when he's on the way up, and you get off him as fast as you can when he's on the way down. How we deal with those whose dreams are dying, those who can't help us in our quest for success, will determine everything about the spiritual success of Christ's body in this industry. Let me say that that is one of the most important things you can ever remember. Filled with godlike joy, are those who mourn and grieve. But thank God Jesus didn't stop there. He went on to say, for they shall be comforted. Now the word that's translated comforted doesn't just mean a a little commiseration, a momentary hug, you know, none of that. It means they shall be strengthened. They shall be given strength in the middle of their weakness. The parallel passage in Luke 21, 621 is interesting. Jesus said, Blessed are they who weep now, for they shall laugh. I see in these two passages a span of time that leads into eternity for you and me. God's people are called to mourn now. We begin with mourning for our own sin. Then our mourning spreads outward into compassion and burden-bearing for others. This is our calling. As we are obedient to it, the strength of Christ himself enters into you and me to fulfill the work he has given us to do in this world. This kind of kingdom mourning will transform your creative life, deepening it and giving it far more power than it ever could have had otherwise. Speaking as a writer, this means everything. When I finished my very first script back in 1970, or in the early in the mid-70s, I sent it to a man named Ernest Lehman. I didn't really know much about him, except I knew he had a list of credits as long as your arm. He was, at the time, the president of the Writers Guild. He didn't know me. I was nobody. I was uh, living in the middle of Illinois. He was one of the great writers. He wrote The Sound of Music. He wrote all kinds of stuff. And he was 
amazing in this that he actually read my script, though it was the effort of a total novice and not even in professional form. He sent back a two-page single-spaced letter. One of his greatest criticisms was that I didn't care about my central character. I had created a stick man designed for no other purpose than to say what I wanted him to say. Ernest Lehman was right. I didn't care about my character because I hadn't begun to understand what kingdom mourning was all about. If you don't have a broken heart for real people, your creativity will ultimately be cold and shallow. I promise you that. No matter where you are right now, Jesus the King wants to deepen and strengthen your whole life, including your creative life, so that you can accomplish his purposes for you. You may think that your dreams have died. You may be mourning over their graves. Well, he mourns with you, but he won't leave you standing in a cemetery. He will strengthen you and lead you into his future. Sometime this coming year, we're going to talk about what the Bible says regarding heaven and the new earth to come. Your creative work that is done for him and his glory here will go on forever in his kingdom. If you are willing to mourn with him here, there is coming a time when you will experience joy that is unspeakable. Remember these words from the end of the last book of the Bible, Revelation 21, 3 and 5. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Friends, Whatever sorrow you're experiencing, walk through it with the Lord and your brothers and sisters in Christ. And remember, the joyful laughter of heaven is coming. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the, the gift of mourning that you have given to your church. We thank you for the strength that is there in it if we know what it is and how it is to be done. We pray that you would give us willing hearts to be obedient, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we might truly experience the gift of tears regarding our own sin. And then, Lord, take us outside of ourselves to show us the people around us. Let us have broken hearts for them. And then let that lead to action, Father. We ask for that in Jesus' name. And we know that all of this power to do everything is because of his death for us on the cross, for the blood that he shed, for the life that he has placed in us, and that life will go on forever. In his name, amen. Broken hearts are everywhere, my friend, and perhaps there is one inside of you. Isn't it true that the longer we live, the more we live with dying dreams? Are you carrying such burdens right now? Sometimes it helps to share them with someone else. If I can help you, if I can pray for you, please write to me. My email is colemanluck at gmail.com. Whatever you share will be held in confidence. Until next time, remember, if you belong to Jesus, total joy is coming in the morning.